We are live where Peter is live. I am Rachel Amiri, your host. Apparently, <laughs> let's bring in the rest of our group today. Uh, we have Mike Lewis, our leader, as per usual, Melinda Ribneck, and David Lafferty, contributors where Peter is.com. We are here for our second live stream event. We're still adjusting to this format. Um, and so our plan is for contributors to kind of discuss recent uh, pieces on the website and recent topics that have arisen in the Catholic world. Um, so this today we're going to start off with the prayer um, that Melinda is going to lead us in, and then we will get back into our program for the day. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, Father, our, our human family, you created all human beings equal in dignity. Pour forth into our hearts a fraternal spirit and inspire in us a dream of renewed encounter, dialogue, justice, and peace. Move us to create healthier societies and a more dignified world, a world without hunger, poverty, violence, and war. May our hearts be open to all the peoples and nations of the earth. May we recognize the goodness and beauty that you have shown in each of us and thus forge bonds of unity. Amen. Amen. So as I said, I'm Rachel Amiri. I'm production editor for wherepeteris.com, joined by the rest of our group. If you guys would like to introduce yourselves, just get everyone up to speed. And I know it's kind of interesting to see faces and voices together. So that's part of what we're doing. I don't know if David, you want to get started? Sure, I'm uh, David Lafferty. Uh, I'm beaming in here from, from Ottawa, uh, Ontario, Canada. Um, and I guess I've been waiting for uh, WPI for a little while. And uh, I guess my focus tends to be on uh, conspiracy theory. And uh, But I, I get into some other topics as well. So that's, that's it for me. Okay. Melinda. Hello, I'm Melinda Ribnick. I was with you guys last time on the live writing about ashes and lint. You don't remember. Um, but I've been working um, with where Peter is now for several months, contributing, helping a little bit behind the scenes and just happy to be here. And I am Mike Lewis. I'm the managing editor of where Peter is and I am wearing a collared shirt today because Phyllis Zagano <laughs> Gave us some notes. <laughs> some crit was, constructive criticism. Well, you know, my mom has passed away, so I don't get uh, <laughs> advice. So I'm, I actually appreciated it. I thought about it, and I thought, no. But this week, I definitely, from now on, I will have a collar on for every live stream I take part in. You look snazzy. You did a good job. Yeah. I, know. I was worried the pattern would kind of like... You know, but no, it's, I mean, HD is, is fantastic. So. We're all looking very professional today. So is that our topic? <laughs> our topic today is not collared shirts, actually. Okay. Our topic today is online Catholic rhetoric and then how Peter is the rock of the church, right? We're going to, we're going to go there today. Okay. Hmm. I've checked some. I've checked with some sources recently, so we were going to talk about that today. Um, but first, there are some other topics that we would like to kind of move into first. So, David, you wrote something for the site this week um, that was about a situation in Canada that you changed your mind on, um, but you wanted to give us some background about these schools for Indigenous children in Canada and how they were run by the church and many children suffered in these homes and and you fill us in you give us more details sure, sure. so uh, this is something that i had been it had been kind of brewing in my head for um a little while now actually years really um uh, because um this this whole question of the residential schools for indigenous children um that existed in canada for um uh, over a century uh became a really a really big topic of national discussion around 2015 um, when the uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada uh, released their final report on the the legacy of the the system and it was a very uh, you know damning report um, that that caused uh, you know a lot of stress and uh, uh, controversy as well um, they came to the conclusion that the, the Canadian government 
um, had engaged in what they refer to as cultural genocide. So um, the attempt to eliminate um, indigenous culture, essentially. Um, and the residential school system was one of the primary tools by which they would do this. So the, the residential school system was was set up, um, you know, ostensibly as a way of um, introducing indigenous populations to, um, you know, a, a kind of modern Canadian um, way of, of living. Um, and uh, what went along with that was um, basically abandonment of, you know, traditional um, religious belief um, and uh, traditional uh, indigenous culture. So. This was for enforced very rigidly. Um, the Catholic Church was responsible for operating the majority of the schools, although the Anglican Church, um, uh, Presbyterian uh, Church also were also involved in it. So it wasn't just the Catholic Church, um, but uh, it, it, the Catholic Church was responsible for the majority. So these, these schools were really characterized by um, a very sort of um, harsh and uh, disciplinary and atmosphere. Um, a lot of the, the children were referred to by numbers rather than by name. Um, they were chronically underfunded by the government compared to other schools. So um, they, the, the food was often you know, terrible and very meager. Um, but there was also a lot of abuse. There was sexual abuse, physical abuse. And ultimately, it's created this generational trauma that's that's lasted a very long time um and i have to admit when i um when this first came out you know i had a very sort of defensive reaction to it um especially because the truth and reconciliation commission asked as one of their demands um uh one of their sort of calls to action they they asked for an apology from the pope uh, from Pope Francis to be uh, delivered in Canada. Um, and, you know, at the time, uh, I guess I, I sympathized with, with some of the, like the bad experience, but I thought, you know, you know, that there were a lot of people who were actually trying to do something good here. Um, you know, in these schools, there was abuse. Yes, it was, you know, terrible, but, you know, you have to compare it to the time period, but, you know, it took me a little while, but after investigating the issue at a little more depth, I realized just how bad these schools were, just how unfair it was, just how um, traumatic it, it would have been for these children to be, in many cases, removed from their families um, and forced to kind of abandon their language, their their names in some cases, um, their uh, and their their traditional beliefs. And you know, one of the the things that you know we run into is that you know, as Catholics, you know, we we do want to spread the gospel. We do want. Um, you know, we want to share, uh, you know, the faith with people. Um, but, you know, reading through this, I realized that, you know, this is, this was a, a mistake. This was not the way to do that. Um, and maybe there are ways that, that, that can, that can, where that can happen. But I realized, you know, we were not, of course, treating um, Indigenous people with, with anything like respect. It was a, a very paternalistic sort of um authoritarian approach, treating them like people who needed to be civilized and all of their culture kind of tossed away so they could become, you know, good Canadians. Um, Pope Francis, um, uh, although he he did, um, apparently he was informed of the, the, the results of this, um, he decided that ultimately he wasn't able to respond in person. Um, I don't know. Um, at the time, I was actually a little relieved. I was kind of thinking like, you know, Maybe I'm not sure Pope Francis needs to apologize for this, but you know, over time, I've come to realize that you know you can have people who are um, good people involved and in, in, in systems that um, are, are fundamentally wrong. And the fact that these are good people, it, it certainly like reduces their culpability, um, you know, in this for the the sins of the system, but it doesn't erase the like the objective wrongness of this system and. Um, it, you can't you can't kind of explain it away that way. So, I I've come to to feel you know in in retrospect that maybe an apology is justified. And so my piece was a bit of a a way to sort of explain the whole situation, explain my initial reaction, um, and and just kind of respectfully um, you know uh, express my hope that 
the Pope will maybe one day look at this again and and reconsider, um, you know, coming to Canada perhaps and um, either, you know, speaking to, you know, Indigenous people here or, um, you know, making an apology on behalf of the church. Now, uh, David, you you made a parallel in your piece to the um, orphanages in Ireland and, and that the Vatican did issue a formal apology for that. Now, I know that there was some commentary a little bit after the fact that maybe the two situations aren't parallel. Um, did you have any thoughts on, on exactly what happened there and, and what could have been done differently uh, by the Vatican with Canada? Yeah, um, Pope Benedict offered a um, uh, an apology to um, Catholics in, in Ireland for, it, it's a little blurry as to what specifically, you know, maybe he was referring to, but um, uh, it came shortly after, I believe anyway, the, the publication of the, the Ryan uh, Commission, or the Ryan Report, it's called, um, and uh, I, I'm not an expert on it, I read a little bit about it. Um, but it looked at the history of the industrial school system um, in Ireland, um, which was uh, church-run, um, where um, you know, uh, kind of you know, kids whose, whose parents couldn't take care of them, you know, would um, would sometimes go. Um, and it's it's so similar the 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 sort of the chronic underfunding, the really harsh disciplinary environment, the, you know, endemic abuse, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and, you know, chronic undernourishment and these kind of things that left a real um, scar uh, on on the population. So I, I do think they are comparable. The one thing that makes, in my opinion, the, the residential school system in Canada that much worse in some ways is that, you know, the, the, the Indigenous people, the children there were really forced to um, abandon everything about their identity and become completely, you know, new people in some ways, which, you know, may have made sense at the time. And, um, but I really think that there could have been, and again, in retrospect, it's easy to say this, but there could have been a way to introduce, um, uh, indigenous children to the Catholic faith, to, um, you know, some of the, you know, the educational standards of, of, of the modern world at the time, um, you know, but in a, in a much more sort of uh, gentle way that showed a real respect for their culture and traditions and wasn't kind of forcing it upon them because um, that's what caused the trauma. And ultimately, when you look at it, it failed. It, it, it completely failed because it's created, you know, uh, uh, generations of um, people who um, fear the church and who um, they, they look at the church as something that, that was essentially participating in the, the attempted destruction of their culture. So that makes it a little, I mean, the, the industrial, I'm not trying to minimize the industrial uh, school problem in Ireland, but the um, this is a sort of added feature um, of the the residential school uh, problem. I think other aspect. Of, oh, sorry, of, of this That's discussion. Okay. <laughs> or if you want to go ahead, I basically my thought was, and when David told me he was writing this piece, um, he mentioned that it did contain a little bit of a critique of how Pope Francis handled this situation and obviously one of the things that we that we do at where peter is 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 we try to present as best we can um what what pope francis is uh what angle he might be coming from or or how how it might be justified now i know in the past i know that when uh when we first started the site, and I don't know if any of you were involved with that, but right around the time we started the site was his his trip to Chile. And there was um, the Chilean Bishop Barros, who uh, basically once he was, he was transferred to the diocese, he never had a chance of, or I, I mean the entire, um, the entire Chilean population basically went into revolt over the over over this guy and and Pope Francis defended him, uh, said that it was all slander. Um, and frankly, looking at the facts, I I had no answer. I had no. I couldn't see it. Um, you know, see what Pope Francis's justification was, other than he was relying on the word of somebody and and 
there was a chance he was right. But I thought that when you presented that this was an issue that you thought that the that the Vatican through through the Pope really should address because it was something that the church had a hand in that did um, cause a, a great deal of hurt. Um, how I guess can you can you maybe can can you maybe speak a little bit about the fact that you did offer a critique, but how how you considered it. Um, how you wanted to frame it? What what's the right way? I guess is a good question. Or not that not that we can be a hundred percent sure. But what do you think is is the what do you think is a valid way to offer a critique of the Pope? Well, I, I mean, I think you know you can. The, the Pope is open to I think respectful criticism. Um, uh, I think that that's that's perfectly fair, and I, I think um, in in my case, um, what made me feel like publishing this um, was that I was actually led to this new sort of conclusion about the residential schools by trying to think with Pope Francis himself. So um, especially, you know, it was during the the Amazon Synod, um, and he showed such, you know, incredible uh, sensitivity to um you know the indigenous people of the uh, Amazon region, um, and uh, it just it offered such a new, um, to me, very exciting um, perspective on the relationship between the church and indigenous people and indigenous culture, and how these things can be in dialogue and be brought together. And um, so, during that whole the whole Amazon synod thing, I mean, along with all the other stuff that was going on, I was thinking in the back of my mind about um, the Indigenous people of Canada and thinking, you know, this this sort of applies to them as well. And so that kind of took me, you know, into this sort of new perspective. So I, I, I in my mind, I'm kind of thinking with Pope Francis, I probably in 2018, when he when he decided he couldn't personally respond, I was probably in that that same, I probably had that same opinion, like, maybe it's best if he just doesn't respond. Um, and and now though I, I feel like he's taken me to a new um, position on this, and I and it's so I just feel like it's my job to say, hey, this is still a thing, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe in the future, maybe you know, if you could consider addressing this um, one more time, I you know would appreciate it. Though that's 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 my basic perspective. It's not a it's not a hostile uh, criticism at all. And uh, I mean, if he decided, you know not to i would respect that decision but um i i do think that um, it's worth you know reconsidering and um and you know potentially um considering i mean i'd love to see him visit canada so that's another uh uh reason maybe to uh, to bring this just to put in a little call for a pope francis visit so um yeah but anyway i think it's if you're if as long as you're sort of thinking with trying to your best anyway to think with the church with the pope um that's that's, I think, a sign of, you know, respectful, faithful criticism. Yeah, I totally agree with that um, perspective on really entering into the tension of this, of learning about this historical situation and how it affects the church in Canada through today, and really entering into it through the lens of what Pope Francis has taught you and on even on the basis of a lot of his teaching and his approach to the faith. Um, so in terms of talking about respectful dialogue with um, one another and then with the Pope, we're going to use this as kind of our jumping off point to really bring into discussion the situation of the American church right now, um, where we really are um, dealing with a lot of tension. Um, the 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 biggest kind of statistic for the past week that keeps sticking out in my mind is the fact that 60 Minutes reported um, this study that he, the American Enterprise Institute did um, polling American Christians about QAnon beliefs. And they found that one in five white American Catholics believe in QAnon being true. Um, and we have found in our experience, and in, it's all over our website, that a lot of the overlap um, in American Catholics today exists between these kind of conspiracy fringe beliefs and this questioning of 
the Pope is the rock of the church, Peter as the rock. So let's kind of start just maybe sharing our own experiences or things that we've observed over the past few years in terms of how QAnon has really affected or the, the uptake of QAnon fringe beliefs has really affected our own experiences in our parishes or communities. Um, I know that everyone here has really written about that, either on a macro scale or on their own personal scale. Um, I don't know if Melinda, you wanted to share some of your experience to start off. You're muted. Yeah, let me unmute you. Yeah. Um, well, I with with this subject, it's a big subject, right? And there's lots of layers to it um, and different angles to come at it. I don't think it's a simplistic problem. Um, I think for me, when I speak about it, um, I talk about the beginnings almost being this um, uh, apologetics movement, right? That highlighted the need to know about the faith, to, to preach it to others and that kind of thing. Um, and with that came um, an emergence of figures and leaders that were really only focused on prim primarily and sometimes only focused on certain um, conservative values in the church and kind of disregarding a lot of Catholic social teaching as being liberal or as being not as important as these um, kind of stereotypical conservative values. So I think for me, I see that that laid the, the framework. And so over the last a decade or two, um, there were, you know, in, in circles that I would hang around or be active in the parish with or have my family around, like, there was a lot of kind of red flags along the way that came out. Um, and so things were already starting to look like um, just there were just pieces that were not quite adding up to this holistic practice of the faith. And so, um the language also became very um, apocalyptic in these circles, right? So I remember distinctly a couple of years ago before kind of the fringe hit social media, right? I do remember distinctly being in a conversation with someone who is now full on QAnon. Um, and she was saying, oh, the church is going to get smaller, almost as if, it, as if it was a good thing. People are going to leave the church. Um, and, you know, the devil's going to attack the church from all angles and it'll be the sign of the end times kind of thing. And I remember saying to her, I would be very careful that you don't think that you're immune to that. And that's what I would say to myself too, as I was discerning what the church would look like. Because if it's true that a lot of people um, will leave the church and the church is going to be smaller, I think we've all have heard that kind of famous like Ratzinger um, prof prophecy. It's, it's set all the time in these circles. Um, but if that's true, then the devil is more coy than that. Um, and so to be careful. And, you know, even in quote unquote orthodox or ultra conservative circles, um, to be careful of how that affects your soul, not just looking at the other and how that affects. And those types, so I would start to say these types of things in the circles that I was, that I was in and it wasn't received very well, <laughs> but things really started to escalate when you see, um, Taylor Marshall videos and, um, you know, these fringe, right. It's, it's all online, social media videos. Um, and just discussions about those videos started to escalate as well. And then, um, around the time the pandemic hit and black lives matter hit and Trumpism was at its peak. Um, then the, uh, the antagonism, um, and the tension started to increase between, these circles and these and 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 me and my beliefs and my activism and different Catholic social issues, um, and it got to a point where I was screamed at in front of my kids. It got to a point where one woman wrote me a three-page, single-page, single-space letter about how I was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, at this point, like basically, my kids and I, my family and I, have been totally ostracized from our parish, um, and. We've even had like this one lady basically try to exercise me, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, like rebuking me. And and I will say, to, and, and not to steal too much time here, but there's also one conversation I think of in which I was sitting down with this woman and I love this woman dearly. And I still do to this day. Um, but I was very close friends with her at the time. And I, and I had her over to the house to talk about these things. And I said, um, 
I let I let her talk a lot about where she was coming from. And then after she was fin finished speaking, I got one minute into trying to explain about specifically, I know I brought him up a couple of times, but spe specifically some of the errors that Taylor Marshall was, was speaking in his videos. Um, and within one minute, she stood up and we were both sitting and she yelled over me, like, you will not take my Taylor Marshall. And I was like, what the heck? And at that point, and she did, she continued to scream at me and then she left. But at that point, when she said that, I just reflected so much on that that night. And I thought, this is, there's a hold here. This is not rational. Um, there was no reason to escalate the conversation. And even the phrasing of that, you will not take my Taylor Marshall. Even the phrasing of that is, is just, there's something grossly unhealthy. It's not saying, I don't believe what you believe, or I don't feel that way. And so, um, and so yeah, so that was probably around May. And so here we are even um, last May. So here we are even months after this. And it's just um, at that point, like the dialogue was cut off. And basically nobody has even attempted to dialogue with me or answered my calls to dialogue. It's been more of a um, closing in on the echo chamber kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, so, and so in that way, it's just progressing and progressing and progressing. And it's very hard for, um, it's very hard to penetrate these communities because the echo chamber is closed off and because there's constantly new material online that feeds this. Um, so I don't know. I hope that was kind of intro into where we're going, but that's some of my story. I have, it's been years in the making, so there's certainly a lot there, but yeah. Yeah. I think, I think QAnon is really kind of the culmination of this current that's been, that's been around in the church since, the 19th century or, or, you know, post probably post French revolution is when, is when this Catholic reactionaryism began. And it, in my own upbringing, I was exposed to, to a lot of this. Um, my grandfather was, he, he would read the wanderer. He was very bitter about Vatican II. He would talk about the Freemasons and, um, Annabale Bunini, the architect of the new of the new mass, the Novus Ordo, um, and I grew up hearing about Freemasonic infiltration. Um, I I mean I've mentioned before I, I was probably about ten years old when I read the book AA ten twenty five, which stands for Anti Apostle ten twenty five. It's available from Tan Books, but it's it purports to be the um, the the secret diary of an anonymous Soviet infiltrator priest, and um, you know it, it, it's funny because it it says all these things. He, he claims to have been part of um, Vatican II and one of the architects of the New Mass, and it, and it's funny because the things that when the book came out, like in nineteen seventy something, um, all. All the things that had already happened, he was like totally accurate on that he had caused. But then he said, oh, yeah. And then instead of the mass with the priest, um, it'll be tables for 10 to 12 people presided over by a man or a woman. You know, like basically all these predictions of, you know, all these worst nightmare type things that um, that the, you know, that radical traditionalists have always put forward. But there's always been this. And another thing about this book, and actually, if you read it critically, and there's, it's funny, because on, on Amazon, there's some, you know, hundreds of reviews of this book, and almost all of them are five stars. But there are one or two one star reviews that really break it down. Um, for like, this is not plausible, like, it, there's no way that this person could have existed, because they, um, because they, someone would be able to figure out who they were if they were actually at the council. There are records of this. Or um, every, you know, why is this communist who hates God using all of these proper traditional Catholic terms and capitalizing things like, um, you know, blessed sacrament? And, you know, it's just, it's it was written by a traditionalist as propaganda to make it sound like there was an infiltrator. And, and but people believe that it's an actual factual book. Actually, I'll tell you this. I was listening to Patrick Madrid's radio show probably a year and a half ago, and he said he believed everything in that book had come to pass. I mean, this is so this is the kind of thing 
And so I was raised on this. But then when I reached a certain age, I realized, like, this is kind of a miserable way to approach your faith. You know, it's like, it's like, I've never derived one ounce of joy out of, and it's like, you read the Gospels, you read you know, I, I had a, a certain affinity for John Paul II, although, you know, there was a little, you, you hear this traditionalist talk like, oh, yeah, a little bit too much ecumenism. And he did kiss the Koran that one time. And, you know, um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I, but I realized, like, I'm reading about peace and love and joy. And yet religion is, a, is, is, my Catholic faith is a source of fear and nervousness. And like, if I die, how much time am I going to be in purgatory, you know, worrying about, and, and I mean, certainly there's an aspect of that in, in, in Catholicism, but it, it's not the focus. And so anyway, my, my twenties and, and my early thirties were, were kind of a journey out of this. And one of the people that helped pull me out of this was Pope Benedict reading Jesus of Nazareth, reading the joy of love, reading about encounter, reading about friendship with Jesus. Like there's a little a little snippet in one of his books, and it's not even a full sentence, but it was friendship with Jesus on which everything else depends. And I had never heard that in a Catholic context before in my entire life. Like it sounded like, oh yeah, Protestants say we're friends with Jesus. And that has, that, that, I don't even know what the rest of the sentence was. And I can't remember which book it was in the introduction of has stuck with me ever since. And, and I resolved at that point that I wanted to find what that was. And a lot of that had to do with a lot of my, my journey had to do with basically unraveling these conspiracy theories. So between 2010 and 2013, I'm realizing that all of these infiltration conspiracy theories, all these fears, I mean, the biggest worry that a lot of traditionalists have had since going back to 1960 something was that this antichrist infiltrator pope was going to come and destroy true Catholicism, which is, if you read my piece about Peter the Rock, that is not an authentic Catholic view. So I'm, I, I undergo this journey. Pope Francis is elected. Granted, he made me a little uncomfortable at first. I'll admit it. I wasn't expecting a Pope to like, yeah, I'm going to have Holy Thursday mass in a prison. I mean, <laughs> gestures like that. I mean, I thought that the idea of him getting on the bus and living in the living in Santa Monica instead of in the Apostolic Palace, I thought that that was you know that was kind of cool. But he was saying he was saying these things that struck me as 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 odd and or struck me. They made me a little bit unco uncomfortable. But by then, I had reached the point in my journey where I realized that the Catholic Church and the Magisterium and communion with the Pope are so essential that I decided to give him a chance. Now, I know I'm going on too long, but to bring us to where we are today, it took me about six to eight months. I mean, I'm a fairly on very, well, since COVID, I've been very online, but I'm a fairly online person. So I had been reading Catholic blogs since like 2004, 2005. Um, but when Pope Francis became Pope, I was really just paying attention to his message. I was reading his audiences. I was reading the summaries of his little um, Santa Marta, Casa Santa Marta Chapel homilies from every morning. I was reading the books about him. So I was absorbing him. Um, Evangelii Gaudium came out. And that, if you haven't read Evangelii Gaudium, his first, The Joy of the Gospel, his first exhortation, that was a game changer for me. Um, really like this is how the church in the modern world is is going to evangelize if if we want to survive if we don't want to be closed in and just thinking about ourselves if we really wanted if we really want to change oh i have a small child coming in behind me <laughs> if we really want to change the world um that's uh that's lucy my four-year-old you want to wave yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but then what happened was I noticed on the blogosphere that 
people were starting to fall for the same conspiracy theories that I had grown up and gotten over. And they were discovering them for the first time. And so people are saying, hey, had you heard that, you know, communists were going to infiltrate the Vatican? Or had you heard that some of these teachings cocked past teaching? Or had you heard that even John Paul and Benedict, they were a little bit modernist too. And so all of these things were happening. I was, I was witnessing this and I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I was the one. I thought they had all gotten over this, you know, all these JP2 Catholics who were happy with Vatican II. I thought they had gotten over that hump and little that that it wasn't that they had gotten over them. It's that they had never heard them before. And now they've slid into this conspiracy mindset. And I, I was just like, holy cow, like somebody's got to do something to stop this. And I was hoping that the bishops would do something to stop it. But unfortunately, um, some of our bishops seem to not mind it or believe it. So anyway, that's kind of what inspired me to start addressing it. But I think with the election of John, so I think Pope Francis, they were able to, to market him as that Pope who would destroy the church. Then when Donald Trump came around, that caused even more division and polarization in our church. And then finally, um, QAnon and the reelection process, I think, has really upped the ante on that conspiratorial mindset. Um, and so, yeah, I've gone on too long, but that's kind of, that's kind of the journey, but this is kind of what I've witnessed. And it's, it's just so anti-intellectual. It's so ahistorical. If people looked at the sources, tried to, you know, don't just read that LifeSite news article, but actually look to see if there are, if there are documents or historical things that back stories, um, that are reputable, reputable sources. But uh, unfortunately, people seem immune. They 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 love their Taylor Marshall, and they're just gonna trust him. So yeah, I think I think both you and Melinda have really pointed out. You know, there's in your accounts there's kind of two aspects towards or that are underlying kind of this slide towards division. And one of those is all these conspiracies that come from who knows where, and they keep cropping up again and again. But then a fundamental part of it, too, is really undermining the authority of the Pope himself. Like, maybe he's not the real Pope. Maybe there are these limits on papal authority. Maybe we need to understand our ability to dissent in different ways. And without both of those at the same time, you wouldn't really have the extent of the division that we have right now. Those are two essential ingredients. Um, and it seems very prominent of late uh, to especially be critiquing this idea that Peter is the rock of the church, the principle of the church's unity, and that our unity, the unity of the bishops is understood through the lens of, of unity with Peter. That has somehow become a controversial statement, especially um, in light of your recent piece, Mike, that was posted on Monday. Um, now, the context of that might make it more or less controversial, um, given a tweet from over the weekend. Um, but did you want to speak more to what, you know, that you, you sent that piece to me and said, this is the most ultramontane thing that's ever been written and <laughs> that may or may not be true. Um, well, but I, don't I think, think it does get out of your point. Well, so here's the thing. Yeah. We get accused of ultramontanism regularly. And you also hear things like papal positivism. You hear, I mean, people come up with all kinds of matrimism named after Rex Matram, one of the characters from um, Brideshead Revisited, who was just like, oh, well, if the Pope says says it's raining, then it must be raining spiritually. Like that's the famous. So some, some clever blogosphere who reads too much 20th century English literature came up with that. Um, but it depends on what you consider to be ultramontanism. Um, if ultramontanism is believing that the Pope has more authority or that he can create doctrine than the church says, then I, then I agree with that definition and I reject it. If it's simply like, this is what the church has taught, officially about the authority and the reliability of the Pope, 
well, then I'm an ultramontanist because that's what I believe. I believe what the church teaches. And so I, so I, I posted a tweet that turned out to be a little bit controversial. Um, Cardinal Seurat, should I get into this? <laughs> he, he made a tweet after his resi, I apologize, please fast forward, you know, two minutes if, if you don't want to hear this. Um, the Pope accepted his resignation, turned 75 in June, and he basically said, the Pope accepted my resignation upon my reaching 75 years old today. My only rock is Jesus, or my only rock is Christ. And, and then I think he, he finished by saying, uh, I look forward to seeing you in, in Rome in the future, something like that. And, and to me, now, I, I've been following Cardinal Seurat closely, and I don't think he is a heretic. I don't think he is totally against the Pope or is an enemy of the Pope. But it's clear if you look from history, they weren't quite on the same page. And I think that they were a cause for frustration for each other. I've talked to people who know, I don't know anybody who knows both of them very well, but I've talked to people who know one and who know the other. And it is, it's a strained relationship. Um, there have been at least four incidents where Cardinal Seurat has said something publicly that has required a correction from the Vatican because he wasn't exactly speaking for the office that he works for, but it was always taken that way. And anyway, um, so I sort of said, is he hinting something here? Is it just me or does this, is he sending a message? Um, this line about Christ being the only rock. And I got bombarded by people who basically were very upset that um, I would insinuate anything other than Cardinal Seurat is completely loyal and 100% supportive of Pope Francis. And just by an odd coincidence, he's also the favorite of people who really can't stand Pope Francis to be the next Pope. But anyway, that's, I'm sorry, now I'm getting a little bit too... Uh, a little bit too casual. So anyway, um, <laughs> well, I, think, I think the situation. So anyway, so so then the feast of the chair of Saint Peter landed on Monday, yes. and there was another bishop who I won't name his name. Someone else might want to, who made another post about how on the feast of the chair of St. Peter, that Christ is the only rock. And I didn't, I, and I, it just occurred to me that Peter is in a, it's a very popular anti-Catholic Protestant apologetic talking point to say, Christ is my only rock, not Peter. Right. And then they've got their, oh, the translation's different. It's just a little pebble. It's not, you know, Peter's just a pebble. Christ is the rock. And, and it's, it's just odd for me to hear it in a Catholic context. So I decided that I would just, based on statements from past popes and the catechism and councils, what, you know, that for Catholics, Peter is the rock. So that's, um, you know, the, the authority was given him, given to him by Christ. Um, Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter. And upon this, Peter literally means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we have this long history of teaching on papal, papal primacy, papal authority. And um, I just... I, and it, and it's all documented. Like people say, I'm just like worship Pope. And I'm like, no, I really wanted to find out. And this is what happened in 20, 2010 to 2013. I studied, like, I thought that all these traditions like had this like objective standard. I didn't know if it was a book or something where like we could tell if we compared this book to what the Pope was saying that the Pope, that we could figure out whether or not the Pope was actually teaching real Catholic teaching. Like I, I, I thought that they were just smarter than me or they they knew something I didn't. And then I started reading 
the documents of Vatican I, the documents of, of the CDF, the documents of every pope named Pius in the last 150 years and John Paul II. And it's like, wait a minute, no. The guarantor of fidelity to scripture and tradition is the pope. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. That's what every pope has taught since Vatican I very strongly. Um, pope Francis uh, taught it in his speech at the close of the, of the first synod on the family that um, the synod walks together with and under Peter. So that's um, basically my, I mean, so I just wanted to articulate that again on the day of the feast. Now I kind of have this tendency when the feast day comes around, that's when I start thinking about the feast day. So I basically wrote it that afternoon and posted it at 11 o'clock that night. So like all the people in England and Australia are on the next day. But anyway, that was, that's where that came from. And I've talked way too much during this hour. So I'm going to mute <laughs> myself okay. and, and I want to hear from David and Melinda. Yeah. Well, I think that um, one thing valuable that you're, you're posted, it, you, it wasn't just like an ode to Peter and to the successor of Peter, but also a discussion of the very real ways that bishops and cardinals need to behave in relation to Peter. Um, and so I would be interested in talking more about what is undermining the ability of many bishops to publicly do that? Like, why are they choosing not to kind of act as vocally in union with the successor of Peter as you might expect them to, um, given Catholic teaching? Or like, do they have other interests? Like, is it because of some of these um, conspiracy kind of far right uh, trends in in the church that we've been talking about. I don't know if David, you wanted to jump in here. David probably can I can, talk. I can definitely <laughs> in there, and uh, maybe I can uh, you know pull some threads together by mm -hmm. you know, by by saying you know I'm I'm willing to say that I think what we're looking at is we've seen the development you know over time, and it, it's maybe over a long time, but it's only become more apparent since the Francis papacy of. Uh, what, I, what I would refer to as a church within the church. So there's um, uh, basically there's the institutional church, and then there's another church that's sort of underneath, and it's it's largely uh, lay led. Um, it's uh, it's ultra conservative. It's it's often traditionalist. Um, it has a very dualistic worldview. So it's just you know the church versus the world. Um, it is extremely susceptible to conspiracy theory, uh, new world order conspiracy theory, especially, um, uh, and, and the language often veers into the, the, the far right or extreme right. Um, and one thing about this sort of church within the church is I think it's, and this is what makes it very difficult is that to deal with is that it's extremely well organized um, and well funded. Um, often from donations. I think a lot of it is really true, true believers here. Um, and it has a much better grasp on communication than the, the institutional church, especially when it comes to social media. Um, and it will do its own thing. Um, and if the Pope, um, uh, you know, offers something that they can agree with, they'll use that. If the Pope uh, doesn't, they will push back against the Pope. Um, and you know, it consists of, you know, I'm thinking in particular where, where I'm in, in Canada, um, you know, we know uh, LifeSite News very well. Um, and uh, it's it's one of these organizations that I think sort of belongs to this church within the church. Um, and I mean, it, other groups would be like, you know, the Church Militant in the U.S. or, you know, the global network of like tradition, family, property type groups, um, even, and now I don't want to say that EWTN is far right, it's not far right, but even EWTN functions as a sort of church within the church in the United States um, and in some other parts of the world. Um, and there's very few um, bishops that they actually look up to. Um, you know, you get the same people showing up over and over again. It's Cardinal Burke, it's uh, Archbishop, uh, or sorry, Bishop uh, Athanasius uh, Schneider, um, it's uh, Archbishop Vigano, um, and, um, and sometimes uh, Cardinal uh, Sarah. Like that's um, that he's he's one of the heroes of that sort of um, again the sort of church within the church. So I think that. 
um, a lot of bishops may fear this sort of um, this this very powerful network, um, and may in some cases play to it because um, they know you know it's you can either be a sort of ordinary, hardworking bishop in the larger institutional church and not get a lot of um, publicity, um, not have a lot of people listen to you necessarily, <laughs> or you can appeal to this sort of church within the church and all of a sudden you're a hero, you're everywhere, you're um, you're at all these conferences, you're, you're like shared on websites all over the place. Um, and you can, you can build a sort of power base um, by doing that. Um, and now I, I actually think too that, you know, this, it, it's not, it's not strictly traditionalist, although it, it tends to be, tend toward traditionalism for sure. I would say it even goes back to um, before uh, uh, Vatican II. I mean, you have in the, um, in the 1920s and 30s, you have people like Father Charles Coughlin um, in the United States, the, the radio priest who became hugely, hugely popular um, and uh, preached a sort of, you know, populist um, conspiracy theory driven far right sort of um, uh, version of Catholicism that eventually led him to just full on uh, sympathizing with the the Nazi uh, party um, in uh, you have uh, Father Dennis Fahey who was uh, an Irish priest who who wrote anti-semitic conspiracy theory books um, that were that have also um, become sort of classics of the the far right um, and uh, yeah it's it, I think this sort of mentality has often existed the the, the Feniites existed before um, Vatican II as well um, so um, it's hard to know um, exactly what it is, but it feels to me, it feels almost like a sort of um, Gnosticism, like it's a kind of, you know, uh, a dualistic worldview. And I think, Mike, you're right, pointing to the, the French Revolution um, as the beginning of this, you had a sort of extreme reaction in France on the part of um, uh, Catholics to uh, the French Revolution, understandable in some respects, but then it it hardened into this, you know, sort of extreme right version of Catholicism. You get a lot of the conspiracy theory, anti-Semitism coming out of that um, uh, sort of milieu, um, and then that carries on. And we're just like, you know, you look at someone like um, Taylor Marshall, his uh, book Infiltration. It's just a a catalog of this stuff that he's found on the internet from all these sort of traditionalist and conspiracy theory sites that he's just sort of pasted together really into a, a narrative that now features Pope Francis. But um, I, I think, you know, this stuff has been there all along. It's just now we're in a very difficult time because the, the people who are part of this sort of church within the church um, are in many ways more powerful in terms of their communications, in terms of the, uh, even some, sometimes the, the, the amount of money that's um, flowing through this um, uh, than, than the institutional church. And the institutional church always seems to be sort of trailing behind, um, uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, respond to this. But, you know, the people like Taylor Marshall, they can pop out a, a YouTube video every single day if they want to about, you know, the most, the latest controversy. And people will, um, you know, be glued to it. Um, so it's a very difficult thing, but yeah, I think it's, uh, um, something we're going to have to, you know, face up to eventually. I think it's almost like we could sit here and try to untangle the threads and the undercurrents that led us to where we are right now for another hour or two, um, and still not get to the bottom of it. Uh, but really since the pandemic, it seems to have really accelerated in terms of what a lot of people are experiencing on the ground and in their own parishes, or maybe we're not present to our parishes as we used to be. We're kind of virtually interacting with fellow parishioners and the Catholic community has really um, been fragmented even more than it even was pre-pandemic. Um, and I think that's what came out too in that 60 minute segment I mentioned earlier was the radicalization that's happened during the pandemic. Like they in identified um, these undercurrents and then really said the isolation caused by this, the COVID pandemic has really just launched everything in a whole new direction and allowed people to really go full throttle into conspiracy theories and um, see their family members really get sucked into that. And I think kind of going back to our personal experiences or, you know, what Melinda was talking about and just in our daily lives, how we are 
coping with maybe a church where many of our fellow Catholics were not quite recognizing how they identify faithful Catholicism as being the Catholicism that we seek to practice, um, how can we really move forward? How can we find common ground with our fellow Catholics in the church? Um, where can we kind of move maybe towards our friends and family members to draw them out of this kind of conspiracist mindset? I'm not sure if um, there's any direction that anyone has an insight there. Um, to share. I know that for myself, it's like <laughs> prayer and companionship seem to be the only thing. Um, I know that it's highly unlikely that our little uh, live stream is going to ever convince Taylor Marshall to lock it up and go home. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. But there's so much that doesn't seem to be an intellectual commitment. It seems to be a very personal, um, a lack of community and a division and fragmentation that's happened because of the pandemic, but how can we reach out and really get people back with us? So Melinda. Yeah. Well, I do think, um, I do think one of the largest missing pieces to the puzzle is from the top down. Right. Um, I had very strong bonds, extremely strong bonds with some of the people I've tried to reach out to and who very much once respected my insights um, spiritually and otherwise. And I can say that a lot of those that are already knee deep, it, it's not... I don't, I don't see where like the conversation could have been different and ended in a different result in multiple times. Right. And so I do think we have to really be real about that. I hear a lot of people say, well, it's just about dialogue. Well, again, maybe I'm speaking anecdotally, um, but dialogue it's the problem is so big that dialogue itself is not going to cut it. Um, and I want to bring up before when you were asking about why are the bishops not all on board? And I think a lot of it is more to do with ignorance, like in the literal definition of the world, they were, they don't know what's going on. When my parish has been very much taken over by QAnon conspiracies, traditionalist, right? I set up a meeting with my pastor who I think means, well, he is not, um, He's not even what I would consider a, tradi a traditionalist priest. Um, and he had never heard of Taylor Marshall, right? And I'm trying to lay out these problems, and I never even heard back from him to continue. And my point to go to him was to say, look, this is your parish. These are the spiritual traps in which they're falling into. And I got nothing back. And this is not to talk like smack on him or anything, but it's to say that the leadership itself does not seem to recognize the magnitude of the problem. So when I hear that 20% of Catholics are in QAnon, I'm like, well, duh. Because I've seen it. I've seen it on the ground and not just anecdotally in my parish, but I'm from across the country. I live in California now. I'm from Georgia. Um, my husband's family is from Wisconsin. His family is all in QAnon. Um, my um, my family, not as much, but the circles in which um, I had developed um, spiritual friendships with my parish is in the QAnon. It's in the homeschool co-ops across the country. It's in, it's, it's, it's so widespread and prolific that parishes are being taken over while pastors and bishops don't even see the problem. So um, I don't know if that was very helpful to say where we go, but I think my there are some people who are not knee deep in it and who are starting to wake up. There are some. Um, and so there's some hope there. But as for those knee deep, I really feel like leadership is going to have to take over. And sometimes I hope that our site um, and, and similar um, outlets can bring awareness so that leadership can start addressing this too, because it's got to come from multiple angles. Um, and I hope too, again, I think the problem is largely um, fomented online. And so I hope to see more online content that combats that, that will help. Um, but it's definitely not, it's, it's, it's a situation that has um, been decades in building the foundation for and the vulnerabilities for. And yes, the past year, the election, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, all of that, um, all of the social changes and things we're going through um, have kind of taken those vulnerabilities and exacerbated them to this massive problem that we have now. Um, but, um, but the problems have been decades in the making. Um, and so I really hope to see from a very personal standpoint as someone who's trying as hard as I possibly can to fight this from just a lay parishioner standpoint, um, 
I really do think that we need leadership to step into this and to see the scale. So that's my two cents. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I appreciated what you said about how sometimes the leadership are acting out of ignorance, um, at least partially. You know, when I hear someone, a bishop talking about how there's microchips in COVID vaccines or things that are really extreme conspiracy theory, like very fringe, um, I just, I think of some misuse of information online. Um, so there is definitely that that intellectual component of it and the ignorance that can be answered. And then there's all of that pre-intellectual like sense of belonging that is provided by being in a community of similar believers. And I think maybe just to sort of wrap this up, we're, we're at an hour here now, but the foundation of our community as Catholics and shared believers is in union with the Pope. So I think that reflecting on the teaching of Pope Francis and his leadership can also be a key towards an unlocking in each of our own lives, um, the ability to discern and to know how to act towards those people in our lives who might be trapped in conspiracy theories still. Um, but also for those who might be confused, just to, to accept some guidance um, from your a tr very trustworthy teacher. Um, Mike, did you have anything to wrap up with? I saw you on. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the key um, that Pope Francis sees these these competing visions going around, and I think, I mean, I keep going back to reality is greater than ideas, and it's it's not just that; it's also that he is very immediate in how he addresses the reality. He re he addresses the person that's right in front of him. He addresses. Um, the the poor that are that are in our world that that are are truly in need the people who have suffered from disasters um and i think sometimes when we take our mind off the reality of the person who is in front of us or the person in need or and i mean real people not the idea of people in need but that there are people in need um that there are people who are hurting that there are people who need god and instead, we inhabit this world of ideas and this world of fantasies and this world of conspiracies. Um, that's that's where the destruction begins. I think our, our imaginations can get away away from us. And I think that um, Pope Francis can be a very realistic guide. I think Fratelli Tutti is a good guide for that. But I, honestly, I brought it up earlier. I would I would recommend the joy of the gospel. For anyone who really read it with an open mind, this is Pope Francis's blueprint for the church. It's a long exhortation, but it really breaks down family life, the role of the pastor, um, the role of, of the parish, um, the role of the homily. What does it mean to preach? What does it mean to approach someone who's of a different faith? I think I think it's his approach is very real, it's very tangible, and it's very applicable in a world that has started to to fall away from the idea of just taking faith for granted or taking the church for granted. So um, fortunately, we have a Pope who, who trusts in science, who trusts in history, who is grounded in the wisdom that has built up over the years in our society, but he applies it in a, he, or he approaches each of these things in a Catholic way. And rather than making up fantasies or challenging narratives when we have absolutely no expertise whatsoever, um, to, to look at them with a critical eye, but a critical eye of how would a Catholic approach these findings as opposed to how would a Catholic, uh, or as a Catholic, I'm going to reject it altogether. So that's, I guess that's my, my advice is, is maybe give Pope Francis another shot, because if nothing else, he is real. 
Yeah, that reminds me, you know, he's he's going to Iraq next week. Um, we have been talking about some issue that affects, you know, the United States, maybe Western Europe. Um, and it, it's kind of like an esoteric intellectual, very online thing. It can seem sometimes, but there's a very real trip happening next week. Very high risk, um, kind of adventurous pandemic tour um, of the Pope and his entourage. They're going to arrive in Iraq March 5th, and there's lots of travels planned throughout the country um, and visiting with very persecuted population of Christians um, remaining in Iraq. So um, as we're signing off here, we can all keep Pope Francis and his safety and the, I guess, productivity and gospel-centeredness of that trip um, in our prayers for the next week. And we will see how that's begun, hopefully, <laughs> uh, when we meet again. Um, and if you like this show, you can support us on Patreon. Yeah. Yes, Go to wherepeopleis.com, the right-hand column, and, uh, and goodbye. Subscribe to our uh, YouTube channel. You can follow us. This episode will be available um, as a podcast, hopefully this weekend, um, in case you want to listen again. Um, but we will be back soon with another conversation. So take care. Bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.